Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, my next guest, he was on five years ago, five years ago. He was working as an anesthesiologist, and now he is, I would call semi-retired. He's not fully retired, but he, he did uh, retire from medicine, and I'm sure it's been a shift. He's been traveling. I see him on Facebook. We comment on each other's stuff because I've been traveling here and there too. Please help me welcome back to the show, The Physician on Fire, Leaf. Leaf, what's going on, buddy? Hey, Dave, good to see you, and I cannot believe it's been five full years, but yes, yes, it's good to be back on. Thank you for the kind introduction. Yes, yes. No, I think, honestly, I think there there's some people that I really respect what they do, and the kind of information you put out there, the quality of the blog posts and, and whatnot. I enjoy it. I, I'm jealous. I wish I had your writing <laughs> ability. You know, I, I, I can write a little bit, but the way you do it with humor, I mean, if people haven't been to your, your blog site, they need to go subscribe and check it out. It's good stuff. Thanks, Dave. No, I, I really, really appreciate that. And uh, that's a, a quite a compliment coming from a chartered financial analyst such as yourself that, uh, you know, knows good information from bad. And uh, I really appreciate that. Well, I like to think so, you know. It's, but, hey, everyone has a different flavor, you know. And uh, yeah. that's why people listen to a podcast like this, hopefully learn a little bit. And I, I would love to... We talked last time kind of about your journey and where you were headed, and here you are now. You know, it's been three years since you retired from medicine, something like that. Yeah, August of 2019 was my last uh, day nice. in the OR. Now, tell us about why not just like fully be done. You know, why keep going with the blog? Like, it's a grind. Like, if anyone has ever done content creation, like doing a podcast like this, like, on one hand, I love it, but on the other hand, I hate it because you're always feeling like you're having to create something. But I love the interaction with people or having conversations like this. Once I'm doing it, I really enjoy it, but it's kind of like a little bit of, okay, I got to make something else. And Right, because when's the last time you had a, a week off from, uh, you know, the content creation side of things? You know, I haven't in seven years. Now, my weeks are, are pretty easy and we're able to do all kinds of awesome uh, stuff and I squeeze in what I want to do or need to do uh, where I can and, and where I where I want to. But, you know, uh, you do have a good point. There is uh, a lot that people don't see uh, in, in terms like, for example, today at 1204, you had to be like, hey, Leaf, uh, we're supposed to be recording a podcast. Where are you? And I happened to check my email. I said, oh, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm not very good at keeping a schedule. But here I am. So there I am. But yeah, there, there is a lot of behind the scenes stuff on the podcast. You have probably, you know, editing to do. You have obviously outreach and scheduling and all kinds of stuff. And with the blog, there is certainly there's the writing, which everybody sees. But there is the, 
you know, promoting and getting that information out there and trying to reach people and trying to grow your reach with your subscriber list and email list and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you know, it's a labor of love. Uh, and I, I do enjoy 90% of it, but there is that 10% that, uh, you know, taking a, a week or two and, and doing something, just forgetting that it, it, it's there. You can't really do that, at least uh, <laughs> not if you want to maintain and, and uh, you know, continue to uh, to grow the site. So do you feel like, do you ever want to be done? Like, just like, you know what? I don't want to blog anymore. I, I've done with medicine, you know, like, I want to be done with this too, to actually be like fully retired rather than semi. I wouldn't just like walk away and let the site fade away and die. But I've, you know, I, I get occasionally these offers to... Uh, you know, look into selling the business and that I have entertained. I haven't uh, accepted an offer, of course, otherwise I wouldn't be here talking with you. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, like any other business, um, if you do a good job and provide uh, valuable service to the people that are, you know, using the business, which in my case is reading the blog, uh, you can make money. And any business that makes money can be valued at a multiple of that profit, you know. And uh, so... Yeah, uh, will I sell it someday? You know, maybe, probably. Uh, but for now, I keep on keeping on and try to improve uh, the content that's out there for the readers that I have. Absolutely. Do you feel like in this this time period of the last three years, right? Three years ago, that you retired from yes. medicine. Yes. I mean, we had COVID during that time. I mean, were, were you ever just kind of like grieving? leaving being a physician like like you know what gosh i wish i was back again the the nope no nope. <laughs> i can stop you right there nope yeah. <laughs> um i felt okay here not grieving but guilty a little bit mm. especially early in covid right we we didn't know what was happening i didn't know if you know that all the anesthesiologists at, at my former hospital would be you know pulled up to the icu to manage vented patients and, and intubate. And, and so I offered my services. I said, if, if you need me, I'm here, you know, for, you know, in whatever capacity, maybe, maybe half the team gets COVID themselves and they can't work and someone needs to come to the operating room. Uh, it turned out that I wasn't needed. In fact, with elective surgeries halted for a while and, you know, most of the patients that had COVID were, were going to different hospitals, you know, at least early on when it was a, a new thing. So they got less busy in the anesthesia department rather than more busy. So they, they did not have a need. So, yeah, I felt a little bit guilty uh, that I was sitting this one out, but uh, there wasn't wasn't a whole lot to do. So so just kept on living life. What did you do during the pandemic? Like, Because uh, you weren't able to travel, at least early on, in it, which I know you love to travel. No, 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 not much. We, we kept our, our bubble small and... Uh, you know, we were homeschooling the kids. I uh, had, you know, obviously had the blog, you know, so I you know, spent some time with that. We were shopping for a new home and eventually bought a house across the street from the lake that we want to be on. We're building a house now and we moved and we did get some domestic travel in because we got, uh, you know, we had this like seven month trip that started with a cruise to Shanghai, China. We were going to spend time in Southeast Asia, maybe Australia, New Zealand, uh, and then cruising back, stopping in Russia. That was pre-Ukraine <laughs> invasion. But of course, all of that got uh, got canceled. And the, the the best consolation we prize we could come up with, you know, once uh, I guess once COVID was in a place where it, it was 
a little better known. There were some treatments. Uh, the vaccines came around. We bought Universal Orlando passes. So we went to the theme parks in Orlando like th- almost 40 times, I think, oh over the gosh. course of 15 months, uh, which is what the annual pass was good for. And uh, we did an RV trip uh, down to like North Carolina and the, the Mammoth uh, Caves in Kentucky. And we did some domestic stuff. And then once we were all vaccinated, then we, we got back to some uh, international travel, which is how we started my early retirement for medicine was a couple of months in Mexico, a couple of months in Spain, and it was March of 2020 that we came home from that. Interesting. Wow. Some cool places, you know, and using <laughs> using the Disney passes. Smart idea to, you know, make get, get the most value out of that. Not exactly the, the place I would see a penny-pitching, pinching early retirement physician. Yeah, well, I'm, our kids, you know, our kids are now 12 and 14. They were um, maybe 10 and 12, 11 and 13 when we were uh, using those those passes. But it's just perfect age. They have a ton of fun at the theme parks. I still have some fun, um, although once I've ridden the Velocicoaster 12 times, <laughs> the 13th time is not that invigorating. <laughs> but they, we thought we'd teach them about, like, the uh, law of diminishing returns, and they never learned that lesson. They're just like, can we go, can we go, can we go, can we go? Okay, but they're old enough where we could go in with them and let them go off on their own. And they could usually get in without us even. Uh, gave them the freedom to uh, explore on their own, and yeah, it was it was fun, but not nearly as fun as like exploring new places in Europe, which is what we've been doing quite a bit um, this year. And uh, been to South America and done a couple of uh, repositioning cruises, so some lengthy like two week cruises, which are kind of cool, all that kind of fun stuff. Well, and I have to think that. During the pandemic, looking at the financial markets, right, like here we had a negative 34% drop in a month. And I was thinking, you know, gosh, this thing, if you look at the averages of a bear market, it's going to last 18, 19 months. Well, here, this thing turns around super crazy quickly as the Fed just drops money and the government drops money on everybody. And uh, we didn't have a 19-month drop. It was a historical bear market of one month. And here you are, fairly newly retired. Was there anything in you, even despite all your financial knowledge, like you were like, oh, this really sucks and doesn't feel good for that very brief, very, very brief time period? Not not really. And I mean, two reasons. Number one, you kind of alluded to, you know, I have a you know, pretty good understanding of market history and, and uh, know that it will bounce back. I didn't think it would bounce back in a month or two either. I thought it would be more like, yeah, I think I guessed like spring of 2022. So I thought maybe a couple of years before it really came back because COVID was so early. And obviously, I didn't know about all these stimulus plans and, and uh, you know, free money that would be uh, inundating the economy. And the other reason I wasn't worried is that I did have the blog, and that does provide enough income to uh, support our standard of living. So I wasn't relying on our portfolio to get us through that time in terms of spending money. So like you you mentioned before, I'm semi-retired, retired from medicine, not working nearly as hard as I used to, uh, but I do have income from my online business. Well, I think... Um... A lot of people ask me, gosh, are you scared about this recession and what's happening with this bear market? I guess it's not a recession yet. We're in a bear market. And I've responded, like, to me, this one feels typical. COVID 
did not feel typical at all. You know, I was thinking we're headed for negative 50 percent, you know, uh, whereas this one, it's long. We're kind of at the slot. Slow drop. It's long and shallow, yeah. right? I mean, it, I think at, at the worst, it's been about a 24, 25% drawdown in the S&P 500, uh, whereas, you know, like you say, it could be 50%, and this hasn't been. And back in the COVID spike, you know, drop and spike, that was 5 8%, I think maybe even 10% in a, in a day, and that was a shock to the system. Um, but this is, yeah, up, up, up one, not down two. Up a half, down a half, you know, it's kind of routine, just ebb and flow, volatility. Well, and, and generally for myself as being a financial advisor and dealing with clients, you know, a lot of my clients that I deal with are typically over 50, you know, they're closer to retirement or in retirement. Some are younger, of course, but we were lucky in that we've had a lot of people be fairly conservative. And I use this opportunity, hey, let's take another step up and get more aggressive because it just felt so typical this time. Like, hey, it might go down to minus 40. I don't know. But it's not going to be at minus 25, minus 30 percent forever. So let's let's take advantage of this thing while we can. Right. And I mean, a lot of a lot of expectations are already built in. Like you said, well, we're in a, well, we're not in a recession. We're kind of in a recession. I think the stock market, you know, pricing, the bear market we're in reflects the fact that we either have been or will soon, you know, formally be in a recession. And I think that's already baked into the, you know, current valuations. So it doesn't seem like we have a ton of downside to go from here. But again, I'm not a market prognosticator. I'm not going to guess what might happen. You know, if oil prices go berserk, if uh, Russia does something else uh, even worse than they've done already, uh, if this drags on forever, you, know, you never know. It, yeah, it doesn't, uh, like you said, it, it, it feels pretty typical. It does. It does. For a bear market, which we have every three years or, or less on average. It, it will, we'll see where this goes. Who knows? But I think I would encourage everybody, hey, if you're relatively conservative, you got money in the bank, right? You know, buy when things are down. This may not be the bottom. We might get to minus 30, minus 40. But if you're able to buy at minus 15, minus 20, minus 25, that's, that's a good time to buy, in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah. And, and to your point, that was me in 2008 and 9, early in my career, two or three years in, because I finished residency in 2006. And I went ahead and just invested money that I was making right into the stock market, you know, loading up. It was a SEP IRA that I had at the time and started a taxable in, you know, brokerage account. And that really helped catapult me to that financial independence number, which I you know, hit within 10 years of starting you know, my career. Absolutely. I'd love to you speak to for a little bit doing what both of us do, which, you know, my day gig is being a financial advisor. Then I'm, I'm flipping land on the side as well as investing in tax liens and other stuff. You were in medicine. You were doing the blog. You know, that, that's a lot of time just being a physician and being an anesthesiologist. And then you added this other thing to it because you started, what, eight years ago? Something like that? Uh, I started blogging just about seven years ago. Seven years ago. So Mm -hmm. that's a grind doing that. And financially, obviously, it's turned out to be awesome for you just in terms of having another stream of income and um, being able to retire from medicine early. Can you speak to that process and what you've seen other physicians do that are creating multiple streams of income? What is it like? What should people be thinking of that might maybe they don't do a blog? Maybe they don't flip land, but maybe they do something. 
you know, on the side to, to help diversify their income. Well, personally, I have to give a lot of credit to my wife uh, back when I thought about starting a blog and I had had an idea for it and I came up with a name and I talked to my wife. I said, you know, I think I'm ready to start doing this, you know, in the new year, which was 2016. And I said, just let me know when, you know, if and when I start spending like too much time on it, let me know when it's too much, you know? And she said, well, I already know it's going to be too much. Like, I'll tell you right now, but go for it. I want you to do it. I think it'll be great. I think you'll do a good job. And, you know, she said, I'll, I'll pick up the slack or, you know, whatever it is. Because we had, you know, two young kids uh, at the time. And I was working full time uh, back then. And I, I wasn't publishing quite as often as I do these days. So I started out slow, but built momentum pretty quickly, growing um, the readership and people interested in what I had to say. So... I did drop down to part-time work my last two years. I was working part-time and then, of course, no time as of uh, three summers ago. Uh, for other physicians, what they're doing, there there are so many different ways to create another income stream, whether it's passive or semi-active or completely active. And the, the biggest challenge, of course, is time. You know, the average physician working full-time is putting in 50 to 60 hours on average, and it, it can be more, it can be less, but it kind of depends on your specialty and, you know, whether you're hospital-based and available 24-7 on, on some days of the calendar. And uh, so time, time is a big constraint. Some physicians will drop to part-time when they feel comfortable with uh, where their career is at, where their net worth is at if they're meeting certain goals. And that certainly opens up the ability to to do the more active things like real estate if you're doing kind of hands-on or short-term rentals and, and you, you know, requires kind of regular daily contact or uh, if you're doing fix and flips, that sort of thing where you're working with contractors and, and subcontractors on a, you know, very uh, regular hands-on basis. It certainly takes time. There are passive uh, opportunities. Uh, you need to do some due diligence up front, read about what you're investing in, understand what you're investing in, and look at you know the track record of the people you're investing with. Uh, but you know anything from real estate syndications, uh, there are agricultural opportunities with with farmland. There are uh, like like you've gotten into the the tax liens, and uh, that's more passive. The, the you know, flipping land that's a bit more active, but you're not you're not renovating homes on this land. You're you're most of it is on the front end deciding is this a good buy and can I make a profit on it. But yeah, it really runs the gamut. It does, it does. And I guess one of the big issues I have is as I see so many quote unquote passive investments, whether it's like the acre trader that you've done or or um, even as a financial advisor, uh, I a year ago, I split off to have my own company that I have because I don't want to be associated with a broker dealer anymore. And back in the financial advisor world, like especially I started in 2002, so 20 years in, in the career. And there are so many companies that work through broker dealers where everybody gets paid, you know, except often the investor. Like, I saw so many things where you were investing in commercial real estate or something else, and the advisor gets paid a 7% commission, the broker-dealer gets paid like a 2% 
referring fee basically they get a six percent buying commission you know for buying or selling the real estate or whatever so a lot of these products from my lens and my world viewpoint were like 85 cents in the ground it's a lot of middlemen yeah for, for you know every dollar you put into it and a lot of these companies, as I looked at them, you know, as being analytical that I am, like not only are you dealing with with that, but then you have management fees that they're charging two or three percent for for managing the thing, and they would show this track record of hey, look at what we've done. But if you look at the numbers, often they were are like they net of fees. <laughs> well, they were often like smaller. They were often smaller deals. So they would show, hey, back when we were a smaller company, we were buying something for $20 million, We sold it for $40 million. Well, now they have a billion-dollar fund, which is so much of a different scale and mm-hmm. issue to find. It's hard to find those inefficiencies when you have that much money to work with. Exactly. So that's some of the things from my perspective that I've seen and – I, I especially hate any financial advisor related thing uh, like that because I know how much they pay in commissions and fees the scenes, and stuff right. like that. So I have a bias against these kind of private things because, you know, I, I think of that. I think of Madoff and people running away with money, you know, and he had a track record, right? Like, that he published. <laughs> of, hey, yeah, here's- may or may not have been accurate. It wasn't, but uh, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a few of the things that you want are transparency and, and not only like someone saying, here's what we've done, but that they're actually audited and they have a, you know, an independent third party auditing their financials, uh, which you know, these, these companies that I, I've worked with do, they, you want to, to see their track record and, like, for example, well, and it needs to be after fees, right? Net of fees. Someone might say, yeah, we bought this for this, sold it for that. Okay, you doubled your money. But, oh, how much did the investors that invested in this deal through, you know, your company, through the advisor who paid who, who paid who, who paid who, et cetera, right? So after uh, all fees returns. And, like, for example, some of these uh, crowdfunded real estate companies, I've looked at, you know, Basically, every deal that they've done that's gone full circle, a couple of them, Realty Mogul, Crowd Street's another a pretty big one, Equity Multiple, they publish um, all of their info and they show what the investors, you know, you as an investor would have gotten if you invested in this deal. And they're all pretty similar. I would say in like the 16 to 18% IRR, internal rate of return, um, that's annualized number. And so that's pretty good. That's after paying uh, the fees that. Uh, I feel are relatively modest compared to the 7% uh, that you're talking about uh, and the, you know, the, uh, the nickel and diming everywhere. Um, the, and, you know, they're upfront with fees. So you know what you're paying. You know what returns you might expect. You know what they've done in the past. And that makes me feel better as opposed to just kind of relying on the advisor telling me, here, this is a pretty good deal. We should do this. And you don't necessarily know what those fees are. You don't know what their uh, individual uh, compensation will be for selling it to you. Uh, whereas with the crowdfunded real estate, you kind of know everything up front. And now a commercial break. Well, my friends, you have 
probably heard, I am now a completely independent financial advisor. And, and as the time that uh, I, I am recording this, the stock market is down. Now, there's a lot of question in terms of where is the market going? Where should I be investing my money? There's no better time than now to get a review of your portfolio and make sure that you are set up properly. As a matter of fact, tax season is around the corner too. Maybe you're looking for some tax, tax strategies and hints and you want someone to talk it over with besides your CPA. Feel free to give my assistant Kyla a call at 612-284-2409 to set up a free 30-minute strategy session with me. Again, call 612-284-209 to set up a free 30-minute strategy session with me. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. And now back to the show. Well, the, the other major thing that I was thinking about that I've really hated about these DPPs that you see in the advisor world is they say, oh, yeah, we'll go full cycle in four to six years. But they're making all this money from management fees. They have very little motivation to actually take the thing full cycle. I have seen some that have stuck around for they were raised back in 04, 05, even 08, 09 during the crash, you know, where you're able to buy stuff relatively low. And here we are today. They still haven't finished yet. I mean, you're talking about going on 15, 16, 17 years and they haven't – they've had distributions to investors, but they haven't actually taken the whole enchilada full cycle yet. Wow. That's the opposite of what I've seen on, on the crowdfunded sites. Like I, I looked at – I think it was Realty Mogul and I've got a blog post on my website. But uh, their average like expected you know, full circle deal was like four to five years. But the ac actual average was like 3.2, like well under what they had predicted. They're they're turning stuff over pretty quickly. Have have you actually seen you personally gone full cycle on some of these things where they've returned all the uh, money? Yeah, but five or six deals actually. Yeah. And how and I how long was the hold for then? Like three years, four years? What was your experience with that? Uh, anywhere from uh, about eight months on what was kind of a fix and flip to three to four years at the most. Yeah. Because I've only been investing in these for about five years. Are they like individual properties or portfolios or both or? There, there's anything you want to find. There are some debt deals that are you know, pretty straightforward. You just you collect interest. There are equity deals that depend upon, uh, you know, buying a property, improving it, or even starting from ground up and building a property and then selling it. And uh, yeah, so every every variety of uh, real estate uh, deal you can come up with, uh, and you can choose individual deals or you can invest in funds. And the ones that have gone full circle are individual deals. Uh, the largest investment I've made is into a fund and it's an evergreen fund uh, that will go on in perpetuity, at least uh, for decades is the idea, making regular distributions and you know, you know what the fees are and you know what to expect from it. And they update the net asset value every month and there are redemption options too. So you can withdraw your money when you choose to, as opposed to locking your money up indefinitely like in the 16 year deals that you see well and, and what would happen in those they would say they have a redemption program right where oh we have a redemption program you can get your money out but reality is you could apply to redeem that's not a problem but then they have a board of directors that has to approve it 
Right. Only 5% of the fun can be redeemed, and oh, we had <laughs> three times as many people request yep. to be denied. Which yeah. makes some sense in that you don't want to have to liquidate all your real estate if everybody puts in a thing to redeem. But on the other hand, like you're not honoring the spirit of what you said you would do. That, hey, you're with us for five years, you know, you can redeem it. Well, you're not actually able to redeem this. You know, they would typically do it for, like, death. So I've seen people that passed, you know, they would honor those requests first. But if you're, like, alive, you know, good luck, good luck getting your, your money out. So what about you? Have you actually redeemed anything? Have you tried that with any of these programs? I have not. I have not gotten out of a, a fund at this point. I've only had deals go complete and pay out, but uh, haven't um, pulled my money from an ongoing deal. It might be an interesting experiment to try and see. Will they actually honor honor the request? Uh, well, there is one that's just a small fund that I invested with with Realty Mogul, and they are going to give my money back, but uh, a quarter of it each quarter next year. Uh-huh. So. I didn't get my check. They said, we'll give you 25% of your money each quarter um, over the, the next 12 months. And that, that was all in the writing. You know, I, it wasn't a surprise. Got it. But that's how they do it. At least it's all in one calendar year. So when it comes to tax time, I, I won't, this won't drag on you know, forever <laughs> filing those 1099s and K1s and all that. <laughs> well, I would, I would point out to everyone, you know, that when we think about illiquid assets, I wrote a, a blog post on your um, blog a long time guess guess was a long time ago on this you know like even if they say you can get your hands on the money right like have have your other money that's not invested in this stuff so that if you need to you can get your hands on the liquid assets anything you invest into this stuff should be considered illiquid as far as i'm concerned right because even if there is like you said if there's a redemption option they may deny it or it might take a full year or you know whatever the case may be. Now, I, I look at this asset class, you know, alternatives, real estate as optional. And my primary, you know, the, the bulk of my investments, 80 to 90% are in stocks and bonds. And I have a taxable brokerage account where I can get that money really quick uh, anytime I need it by selling and have the money in my checking account within 48 hours. So, yeah, it's, it's very different when you're looking at the illiquid or semi-liquid assets, which many alternatives are. So from your experience, if someone is asking companies about the fees, like what do you think in your mind is acceptable? Like you look at Acre Trader, like what are they charging? Or you look at some of these others you were mentioning, like is 1% management acceptable, 2%? Like where do you personally draw the line to say, you know what, that's too much. It's not, the juice isn't worth the squeeze on this. Right. Well, some people will look and they'll they'll compare this, you know, 1.5% origination fee plus a 1% management fee or whatever it might be. You know, but that it'll look like something in the probably 1% to 3% range you know, on, your, on your invested money. And they'll compare that to VTSAX, the Vanguard Total Stock Market Fund, which has a 0.04% annual fee. And they'll say, well, that's a ripoff. You, you're going to lose all your money to fees. And that's not the right comparison. That's apples and oranges. You know, The, the fees you're paying to these real estate operators are to run the company, you know, partially, you're, you're paying for them to prepare tax documents, to operate the fund, to pay the accountants, all of this kind of stuff. You're, you know, you're paying part of their ongoing expenses, uh, whereas VTSAX, those companies have expenses, right? The companies that they own, the 3,800 
companies in there. Um, but the cost of doing business is reflected in the stock price. It's not charged to you. And uh, so it's very different. Uh, so I'd like to look at the returns, you know, the expected returns and the actual past returns after fees. And that's what you should be looking at. Okay. So you might take a little more risk with a real estate fund that uses some leverage, but they keep their loan to value, you know, percentage relatively low and expect to earn 12 to 14% per year. And that's after all fees are paid. That's after they collect their, their money. I think that's okay. But now that looks like even if the fees are two or two to 3% and let's say they've been able to do this for 10 years already. Okay. Well that, that seems fair. And again, your, your fees are, are very different when you're looking at stocks versus looking at a company like buying and selling properties. Absolutely. So, would, so it sounds like, if I'm hearing you right, 1% to 3% would be pretty typical, most people looking at. Right. And whether you pay some of that up front or if there's a redemption fee, if you sell within the first three to five years, uh, there you know, so ongoing fees. So year one might look different than year two or three, uh, more expensive, or your final year might be a bit more expensive than the middle years. But I, I would say that's that's fairly typical and reasonable because we're seeing, you know, pretty strong returns after fees, even with that one to three percent. Love it. Well, I think to your, your, your compliment, you know, I think, um, number one, you're not relying on one of these companies, mm -hmm. right? Which I think is the Madoff problem, right? You put too much of your money with, with the illiquid investment side. What if, what if it is a scam? Right. Like you don't want to put too much of your eggs in that one basket. You know, being invested in several of these programs and different sponsors makes an awful lot of sense to me. Just like I wouldn't invest 10 percent of my money in an individual stock. I wouldn't put 10 percent of my money into an individual real estate deal or a crypto asset or anything really other than index funds, uh, which are baskets of hundreds or thousands of publicly traded stocks. So, you know, it's all about diversification and a lot of people have lost their shirt by not being diversified and trusting people they shouldn't have trusted like uh, Sam Bankman fried for example. Right. So yeah. And, and, and then you look and you say, why did you put all of your life savings into Terra Luna or, or some other, you know, it's just makes you just want to. Yes. So what are we thinking? What are we thinking? You know, go ahead, 5% of your money, play money, maybe 10% in a variety of speculative type uh, investments. But the bulk of anyone's portfolio, I think, should be stocks and bonds. And uh, real estate could be the bulk of your portfolio if you want to make that a part-time job and really spend a lot of time you know, researching and understanding and monitoring and maintaining your portfolio of real estate, whether it's passive or active or a combination. Love it. Now that now that you're there, you're you're experiencing the being retired from medicine, and there's someone listening to this. They're a doctor. They're working hard. Maybe they're they're burned out to a degree, but they aren't there yet with saving what they need to save. But man, they would love to be done with medicine if they could. And it's like the golden handcuffs. What would you say? to that person well it's a it's a, kind of depends on their situation but you know there are things you can do hopefully to 
improve the way that you enjoy your career or tolerate your career. Uh, and that might mean a new job. That might mean a difficult conversation with uh, your administration or your partners. Uh, it might mean working less or working somewhere else, like I mentioned. Um, so obviously, one part of it is to try to find a way to find joy in the work that you do. And uh, again, there are lots of resources that talk about burnout and resilience and moral injury and you know, whatever the uh, prevailing uh, term for it is. But uh, I won't get into that. And that's a huge, huge subject. Hopefully, there are some things you can do. And, and systemically, there are certainly things that could be done to help doctors. Uh, but then on the financial side, I think I see a lot of people trying to spend their way into happiness. And that, A, doesn't often work all that well. And B, keeps you further from achieving that financial independence where you have the optionality to work or not. And so I always encourage uh, physicians, you know, regardless of whether they love their job or just tolerate it, but to try to save quite a bit of money because you don't know how you're going to feel five or ten years from now. And so I have a you know live on half challenge, which may not work for everybody. But if you can save as much as you spend each year, then you'll be financially independent in 15 years or so, give or take, depending on market returns, assuming you invest the money that you save. And so... Uh, it's a lofty goal for some, but if you're making multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars per year, it's, uh, you know, it might be an achievable goal, at least in most parts of the country, in, in most medical specialties. Absolutely. Well, I think the point being out of out of this conversation, and you look at your situation, you aren't locked in, right? You know, it might feel like you're stuck, but you're not. You have, you have options. You've got skills. You've got... Yeah, you've got talent, you've got uh, a medical degree and maybe board certification, and, and that's all valuable. Absolutely. So many different places, so many different ways, whether locums or a different hospital or working less, you know, at, at the current gig, you know, and it's just a matter of adjusting your life, you know, financially, you might need to make some changes, and this can be done, right? I guess any, any closing thoughts, Leaf, you want to leave with everybody and encourage them? You know, as, as you think about your journey and where you've been and what you've seen. Yeah, I, I just want to uh, want to thank the, the physicians that are, are still taking care of folks because we all can't do what I did, right? That would not work <laughs> out very well for a society. So thank you for uh, being a physician and being there to, uh, to care for folks. Uh, but if you want to put yourself in a position where uh, work is optional, invest simply. Like we said, don't go all in on some crackpot scheme <laughs> idea uh don't expect that uh spending the vast majority of your income is going to lead to uh, a happy life because i've seen it many many times where it just doesn't work out and uh try to find joy in building up the value of your investment portfolio i love it that worked for me <laughs> good stuff so leaf if people want to check you out keep up with you what's what's the best way to do that physiciononfire.com. You can type in P-O-F-I-R-E.com, P-O-F-I-R-E.com, and that'll take you there. I'm on many of the socials, not TikTok because I'm not an actor, but you can find me uh, pretty active on Twitter and Facebook, and I have a couple of Facebook groups, one called Physicians on Fire, that's plural, Physicians on Fire, for doctors only, and one called Fat Fire, which is for everybody 
that's interested in a higher budget, higher than, than average spending type of fire because many other fire blogs are all about frugality. And as much as I talk about relative frugality, uh, you know, we, we do spend probably six figures a year and that's, that's after all debts are paid off. So anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm quite, uh, quite easy to find online. Love it. So thank you. Thank you, Lee. Thank you for being with us. Yes. Thanks again. All right, my friends, that wraps up another episode today of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Make sure to keep up with with Leaf. Like I said, he's someone that I really admire. Great content, everything from credit cards to um, physician case studies to the different real estate stuff that he's in to the regular stuff. So great guy, great content. Make sure to check it out, physicianonfire.com. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Denniston. Thank you so much for being with us. Remember, slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Why, thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now, I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant, and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded from registration. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of an issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.